Good afternoon, gentle listener. Uh, welcome to the bookroom in association with Starburst Magazine here on Fab Radio International. I am producer Al. Um, it's just me today, which is potentially going to be slightly odd. Um, so we've played with the format a little bit. There's going to be quite a lot of book news. Um, two maybe three interviews depending on how long I manage to talk about the book news for and if we really run out of things to do um, I will play a loosely book related song for you but that's only if I somehow manage to to massively underfill the hour Um, let's see how it goes music is loud when it starts isn't it so i am producer al you may have heard me screaming at ed and nympha and uh, dell and Sai and russ ordinarily to you know get on and talk about the book news so why today when we have so many presenters usually available to us is it just myself um if you're a regular listener you'll notice that ed has missed a couple of the last um shows that's because he currently has a job that involves him working on weekends in the run up to christmas um and pretty much everybody else has family who live a long way away it's three weeks before Christmas. Um, obviously, they're out seeing their family uh, and doing Christmas-related things. Uh, I am the only person who had the day for me. Um, so, yeah, we will start, as we always do at this point, with some book news. This might be slightly hesitant as I, you know, trip over names and microphones and try and get our volumes right and things. Um, going to split the news up into various bits throughout the show. If you want to get in touch, please, please get in touch and have a conversation with me. Otherwise, it, it's literally me talking into a microphone for an hour today. Uh, we are on Facebook um, as The Bookworm. Uh, we are on Tumblr as Radio Bookworm. Uh, and we are on Twitter as, shockingly, The Bookworm at Radio Bookworm. Uh, and I'll tell you exactly. Yeah, The Bookworm is Starburst... Uh, Sorry, the Facebook is Starburst's The Bookworm Radio Show. Um, but we are available via all of those methodologies if you would like to talk to us. And I will try and chat back to you whilst we play the interviews and things or talk to you later in the other bits of news. So, first bit of book news. Uh, Stephen Baxter to write War of the Worlds sequel. Stephen Baxter has written a sequel to H.G. Wells' science fiction novel The War of the Worlds, which will be published by Galanz. Long-term friends of the show, Hello Galantz. The appropriately named The Massacre of Mankind is set during 1920s London. Ooh, interesting. Uh, The Martians return, but this time they've learned from their mistakes. Baxter promises to update the themes of Wells' original work whilst bringing his own unique style to the classic novel. 1920s London, of course. Um, is still very much smarting from World War One um, and from society's reaction to that. Um, so you've got a lot of people who have fought in the war, a lot of people who have sent their loved ones off to war only to see them not come back or to keep... Cut- they've come back devastated shells of man uh, of men um 
physically injured, mentally traumatised um, and now they've got to compete with Martians as well and very much the reaction to, to sort of the horrors of World War One was to go for that sort of decadent, flamboyant flappers, Charleston drinking, jazz age we are going to have some fun because god damn it we're alive type vibe um, and I just wonder how Martians coming in and trying to invade the entire world works with that because there, there's still very much at that point in history, international prejudices um, you know, we don't like the Germans. We don't like anybody who sided with them in the First World War. Um, but now suddenly we've all got to act together. Maybe a little bit of an Independence Day vibe there for those of you who have seen the uh, the film starring Will Smith where they take down uh, alien invaders with some sort of coding virus. Anyway, um, we will see how that one goes. That one's coming out next year. Uh, next. Oh... <sighs> Unpronounceable names. Um, Alex Stewart, who goes by the pseudonym of Sandy Mitchell, has signed a deal with military SF specialists Bain Books, B-A-E-N, possibly. The new series will be called Shooting the Rift, and it's a sci-fi action adventure. Fans of the popular Black Library hero of the Imperium books will apparently find much to love in Stewart's new series. Um, I've got to be honest, I have never read anything from the Black Library or from their 40k range. Uh, I understand it varies massively as to uh, how you feel about that, as to how the particular book is doing. I understand that there are some books by some authors that will always be quite quality and you will always know what you're doing. Um, I, I don't know what else this is going to be about. Military SF Specialist Spain books. Hmm. Sci-fi action adventure. Potentially an interesting one for the new year. Uh, Neil Springs The Watchers optioned for TV. DNA Films and TV won the television rights to Neil Spring's science fiction thriller The Watchers following a highly competitive auction. Oh, we do like a book auction, don't we? Uh, the Watchers is set during the Cold War and details the Ministry of Defence's efforts to cover up UFO sightings. Just hide in a desert in Nevada, mate. Uh, the book combines the history of UFO sightings with a tense paranormal drama and seems like an ideal setup for a TV show. Uh, you'll forgive me, gentle listener. I'm also still labouring under the uh, cough slash sore throat slash whatever this is that I've been labouring under for the last few weeks. There might be the occasional cough. Um, yes, that sounds like it could very well be some sort of procedural X-Files type thing. Uh, you know, UFO slash alien sighting slash what is this random thing we found in the middle of a red crater in Cambridgeshire um, of the week type special. Um, which obviously... Obviously, they're remaking the X-Files at the moment, aren't they? Or making a new series of it 20 years on. Um, so maybe that is um, an attempt to cash in on that trend because the X-Files revival, I'm aware, is exceptionally popular uh, amongst the peoples of the internet. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Whenever you get a TV show that's becoming revived or becomes popular, somebody else tries to ape it. So um, Downton Abbey, the BBC, had its upstairs-downstairs revival. Now, actually, there's a little bit of a thing there because the, the upstairs-downstairs creators went to the BBC first, um, who kind of dragged their feet about actually putting it on screen, and ITV got in there first with Downton. So it looks like the Beeb copied ITV. In fact, it was the other way around. But, you know, unfortunate history. Downton's still going for another few weeks at least um, but yeah there's always this thing to cash in on oh well those people are making that TV show so let's make something similar Sherlock and Elementary recently the other one that springs to mind there um, 
What else have we got in this bit? J.K. Rowling pledges £5,000 to fund an anthology. Uh, she has pledged £5,000 towards Nikesh Shulkas, The Good Immigrant, an anthology on race and immigration, immigration, which is being hosted on crowdfunding site Unbound. Ooh. Um, she's going to be the patron of the project. She gets a signed first edition paperback and ebook version of the anthology. Um, Rowling tweeted, I think this will be an important, timely read. Help fund The Good Immigrant. Um... The people at Unbound treated to clarify, yes, we did receive a very generous pledge for Nikesh Kula's The Good Immigrant from J.K. Rowling. Great day for a great book. Uh, Shukla, who presumably was like sitting there with their jaw on the floor, told the bookseller, I'm just so overwhelmed with the response to the book. It shows the need for emerging black, Asian and minority ethnic voices is so needed. And I'm glad to see people like the young people I work with in Bristol pledging alongside such amazing heroes like J.K. Rowling. It's inspiring. Um, so basically, J.K. Rowling has... has stumped up the the top level I'm going to guess top level poorly of pledge on a crowdfunding website and it's interesting I think this thing about crowdfunding um, you see it on Kickstarter you see it on Indiegogo you, you presumably now see it on Bound um, and I'm going to have to poke the internet during our first interview to figure out exactly who they are um, this interesting thing about people funding art and how that works now and how it's not always just you know 250 people pledging a small amount of money but how that one big big pledge can make a massive difference because this story is now going to go worldwide because that's the sort of clout that J.K. Rowling has these days. You know, she she tweets anything, it gets picked up by hundreds of thousands of people. She tweets something like this, it gets picked up by the mainstream media. This story that we're talking about today came from the bookseller. I'm fairly sure it will have been in the mainstream media in some way, shape and form. I have a feeling I might have seen something about this on the BBC website a couple of days ago. Um, crowdsourcing is an exceptionally interesting way, and I think it's an interesting response um, generally to a lack of arts funding, especially that's happening um, in the United Kingdom at the moment, um, and how society has responded to that and said, you know what, this is the art that we want to see, it's the art that we want to see, we want to see made, we want to see engaged with, and it's a very interesting platform to give an audience and a platform and a publishing deal to the sort of works ordinarily wouldn't necessarily get picked up, so it is things like people from an ethnic minority, unfortunately still, people who are women, uh, people um, who are less physically abled, um, people who would not be necessarily looked at by mainstream publishing, mainstream TV commissioning, mainstream film commissioning, um, mainstream entertainment industry, in, uh, mainstream entertainment industry commissioning as a whole, um, would look at them and go, nah, there's no audience in that, we don't really bothered. Um, and this shows, I think, that there is an audience for it, um, and that can only be a good thing. Um, do you need to obviously avoid cliques and the like? Okay, so we are going to play one of our little stingy jingle things, and then we will come back and we will have our first interview. So, our first interview today is with Simon Guria. Possibly pronounced that wrong. 
do apologise if so. Uh, who is the same age as I am? There you go. Uh, a British science fiction author and dramatist closely associated with the fictional universe of Doctor Who and its spin-offs. Uh, he's written three Doctor Who novels for the BBC books range. Ooh, so, you know, authentic and possibly slightly canon-ish. Um, his work has mostly been for the Big Finish Productions audio drama and book ranges, which are absolutely excellent. I strongly recommend the Eighth Doctor stuff. Um, it builds an entire world. It's brilliant. Um, Guria's earliest published fiction appeared in Zodiac, the first of Big Finish's short trips, a range of Doctor Who short story anthologies. To date, his work has appeared in the majority of the short trips collections. He has also edited three volumes in the series, The History of Christmas, Time Signature, and How the Doctor Changed My Life. Um, the second of which is based on one of Guria's own short stories as a sort of jumping off point um, he's, he's getting into editing quite a lot as well and novella collections um, and has now become the producer of the Benice Summerfield range of plays and books um, that was a few years ago so let us hear what he has been up to recently this according to my uh, time thing lasts about 13 minutes so i will see you at about half past 12 do please as i say get in touch on the facebook or the twitters um to talk about book things or ask any questions and i'll be back with you momentarily this is fab radio international international Simon Gowie, welcome to the Bookworm. Uh, thank you for having me. What can you tell us about the scientific secrets of Doctor Who? Well, it's an exciting and beautiful-looking book which you can buy in shops now. What more do you want to know? Why does Doctor Who need a science manual? I think it's an area that hasn't really been explored before. Um, there are uh, books relating to other uh, TV shows and franchises. That I think this sort of began with the physics of Star Trek, but there are books about the science of Harry Potter and the science of Discworld and, and so on. Um, and although there's a um, there's a book by uh, Paul Parsons on the on the science of Doctor Who, which was published in 2006, that was much more about um, sort of looking at the latest developments in science. Uh, and, and Paul Parsons interviewed various practitioners at the cutting edge of science and things. Whereas what we wanted to do was kind of use Doctor Who to explore the sort of themes of science and um, so our idea was to use Doctor Who as a, a to kind of explore connections between science the history of science and the programme to kind of um, offer a new perspective on both, that was, that was the idea so do you go all the way back to Kit Pedler and the Cybermen and that sort of thing? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We we talk about the uh, we do, it's from the very first episode to the Unearthly Child in 1963 up to uh, the most recent Christmas special. How has the show's relationship with science changed over the years? I think there's a number of things. Firstly, when the show began in the 60s, the BBC had a, a remit of to um, inform, educate, and entertain, and you can see that written. You know very firmly into the show so the the doctors uh, got three companions two of them are school teachers one is a history teacher and one is a science teacher and as they go through their adventures there are various um developments and, and things in the plot where where ian's scientific knowledge comes out so they um they use the fact that uh, they, they they make some deductions about static electricity to escape from the daleks and their in their first adventure with the daleks yeah, Marco Polo, uh, another early story, uh, the, um, they're in the desert and they run out of water, but the um, change in temperature causes condensation in the TARDIS, and that's how they, they survive, and they, they sponge the uh, condensation off the walls. 
So there's that kind of scientific, kind of school-level scientific knowledge written into the series. Um, at the end of the first Doctor's run, the uh, script editor, Jerry Davis, was actively looking for scientists to come and consult on the show. And he, um, he spoke to various people. He spoke to um, Patrick Moore. He spoke to uh, Alex Cox, who's, um, who would later go on to become famous for The Joy of Sex uh, book. But he, um, at the time, was very famous. For, uh, uh, he appeared on TV all the time talking about old age and um, the processes of old age. And he eventually settled on um, a, an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor, called Kit Pedler. Um, who was very interested in where technology might take us and how it might change us as people. And between them, uh, they came up with a number of stories, uh, one of which was the first story with the Cybermen. The, the, the two of them invented the Cybermen. So you can see that kind of active interest in science. Um, later, you get people like Douglas Adams, who was a script editor of Doctor Who in the late 70s. And although his stories are very, very funny, they're really um, bedded in some very... Uh, high-level uh, scientific concepts and, and all sorts of things about how you might communicate with aliens, um, how life uh, began on Earth, things of that sort, uh, even like wormholes and black holes technology. And um, I gather that one of his writers, David Fisher, was even working with the sort of physics teams in Cambridge to get his his ideas right. Um, so, so you can see those kind of sensibilities in the show, but. At the same time, there are other periods of the show and other writers and production teams who were just less, less, you know, worried about it. Less, it, it seemed less of a concern. So, um, yes, it's changed over the years, but but it's changed over the years really about, by who's in charge, who's writing it, what people's individual sensibilities are. How do you compact such a dense subject into one book? My overriding concern was I wanted to spread a broad range of Doctor Who and I wanted to cover a broad range of scientific disciplines. So make sure I've covered physics and chemistry and biology, uh, try and cover some mathematics, try and cover some psychology. Um, there's even a chapter on whether history is a science. I also needed to make sure that there were that whatever I was talking about, there were Doctor Who examples or ways of linking it into Doctor Who. And that limited some of my choices. So I would have really liked to have done... I mean, to give an example of the kind of where I went but didn't get anywhere, the cul-de-sacs of it, um, I was quite interested in doing something about the gap, what we think of as the Dark Ages, where there's a gap between the sort of tradition of the Greeks and Romans and then the Renaissance. And in that time, you've got um, what Jim Al-Khalili refers to as the golden age of Arabic science, when there's all sorts of things going on in uh, what was known as the House of Wisdom in Baghdad and various other places like Cordoba. Um, and I thought that was really interesting and a very Doctor Who kind of idea of, of changing the sort of consensus opinion of, of how the history of science has worked. But I just couldn't find ways to link that in to Doctor Who stories. There weren't enough... There wasn't enough Doctor Who stories either set in the Middle East or dealing with those sorts of issues. Um, you know, even with there were there weren't stories where there were analogies with that that were set on other planets or things like that. Um, and the nearest I could find was there's a line in a in a 1965 story called The Crusade, where the Doctor is in a marketplace in um, just outside Jerusalem in, or, or, or in that sort of area, and he. Um, he comments on how brightly coloured the, the clothes on sale are, to which the, the um, shopkeeper says, oh, yes, it's the latest thing from Basra. 
And I was kind of, can I link that to the developments in Basra of scientific knowledge and the way that they were translating the stuff from the ancient Greek and whatever? And it just became too tenuous. So, so it was those sorts of things I was thinking about. And, and um, you know, and, and a lot of it is is sort of lateral connections and things like that. And what what you're what we were trying to do was to to kind of give cogent, solid examples from Doctor Who that illustrated and explained the science. Um, and that, that really kind of dictated our choices of what we covered. How will this book influence your future Doctor Who work? Well, the, the, the book actually comes out of work we were already doing. Uh, Marek has been the um, unofficial scientific advisor on some of the um, plays I've written for Big Finish. Um, which which is actually where a lot of this stuff came from. Um, I wrote a, a first Doctor story called The Cold Equations, uh, in which there's a um, there's an accident in Earth orbit, and that came directly from something Marek had said at an event that, that he organised, where I was a guest there, which was one of the first times we met. Um, and literally, he said, you know, this, the litter in orbit is a problem, and I thought, oh, there's a there's a story there. There's something that we could do. And when I started writing it, I asked him if he'd look over it and make sure that it was a, the science was okay and I wasn't making any obvious errors. And um, the the upshot of that was I ended up doing a GCSE in astronomy at the observatory where he works, and um, he consulted on on the things I've written. And I've written a number of plays and stories that he's looked over and sort of pointed me in the right direction. So this book has come rather naturally out of out of that. Um, and the answer is yes, I've learned lots just by doing the reading and just by thinking about what we were writing about. Um, and there are bits and pieces I've been writing this week, in fact, that, that have come out of stuff that I've discovered. Um, it's also the way that these things work is, is they kind of lead you to other things. So just, you know, not, the book is done and delivered and is out there. But I'm reading another book at the moment, just sort of off on the back of it, which is a... Um, it's called The Strangest Man by Graham Farmelow, which is a biography of the mathematician Paul Dirac, who worked in quantum mechanics. And, and as you may know, the Doctor Who companion, Adric, um, was named by script editor Christopher Bidmead um, in Dirac's honour. And it's an, uh, Adric, is an honor, uh, is a, sorry, Adric is an anagram of Dirac. And what I hadn't realised until I read the introduction of the book was that Dirac was also the first person to... Um, come up with the idea of antimatter and Adric was obviously killed in a, a in a spaceship crash where the spaceship was powered by antimatter and I found myself wondering is that was that planned is that just a coincidence did somebody think oh that's you know that's something that we could do is that is there so immediately I'm thinking oh well there, there could have been a chapter on that we could have done something that that kind of picked up on that that idea um and I find myself wanting to talk to uh, Christopher Bidmead or, or Eric Sayward, who wrote the story where Adric died, to, to kind of go, was that, did you do that on purpose or, or, or what? So, th- I mean, those are the kind of things that it leads to. Um, and maybe there's a story in that somewhere or a feature or something. If you had to save one book, say the civilization is collapsing and you only get to save one book, what would that book be? Wow. I think the two, the two books that have, have had an amazing influence on my life. Um, I was a, a terrible, uh, unscientific uh, art student. I did an English degree and then a master's in English and history. And science is always something I've struggled with. And then I read um, Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything, which entirely changed my outlook on these things. Um, that not only should I apply myself, 
but but it was fascinating and interesting and there were ways into it that I could understand and grasp and tackle with um, I think that's an extraordinary book uh, uh, an extremely detailed extremely comprehensive science book for the lay reader which is no mean feat at all um, and then there's a then there's a book that I um, adore which is is the book of a 1978 television series um called connections which was presented by james burke and is um the, the book is by him as well and what he does is he gives a sort of history of science but by following threads so it's quite esoteric and it, it sort of makes lateral connections and links between disparate things so he talks about you know the the series of discoveries that led to the invention of the thermos flask and then jumps from the thermos flask to the space rocket because effectively the engines on a space rocket are a, a giant thermos flask um and that again made connections you know literally uh, uh, in my head and and made me think about science in a completely different way and i think between them those are the two big influences on this book but they're also where i would recommend anybody who like me, feels that science is something that they left to other people. Um, they were they were a great entry into that, and and I think that those would be the ones I would like to keep. Sure. Oh, uh, Daleks or Cybermen? Daleks. I don't I don't know why. If you'd asked me another day, I probably would have said Cybermen. But um, yes, for today, Daleks. Science fantasy or science fiction? Well, I don't I don't mind both. Um, and and I would I could be very ponderous and wonder what you meant by each. Um, I think I think the approach to science can can be different. I mean, there, there are things in Doctor Who in the history of Doctor Who that were put, as we talk about in the book. There are things that in the history of Doctor Who that they put in because they thought it would be a big, funny, ridiculous idea that then turned out to be real science. Truth or beauty? I think truth is beautiful. Truth. Simon Garrier, thank you very much. You're, you're very welcome. This is Fab Radio International. International. So, yes, that was Simon Goya. Strangely appropriate uh, music at this point, because it is, of course, Mummy Gold's uh, I Am the Doctor. Um, yeah, the science book is really good, because for those of us who are not very good at science, which is pretty much me, um, it, it's it's interesting it's accessible it tells you real proper hardcore science uh, and it does so without being patronizing possibly one uh, for uh, for a christmas present for for the person in your life who, who's into that they're doctor who and you don't know what to get them because their shelf is already groaning with dvds and tie-in novelizations and big finished audios uh we may if we have a little bit of time come back to uh, possible christmas gifting ideas for the book lover in your life at the end of this program if you have any suggestions please get in touch um, on the Twitters or the Facebook or the Tumblr. Uh, Run Along Womble has been in touch. Hello Womble. Um, sort of asking if this is like the Capaldi episode of Doctor Who from the other week and I am saying that I hope it doesn't run quite so long in terms of the four billion years. Um, it's certainly feeling like it's going okay quite quick. Um, so a little bit more book news for you she said ruffling her pieces of paper and reaching for the next bit of the news. Um... 
Now, if I was titling this little news section, I would call it uh, Cons Awards and Submissions. So, EasterCon reopens its consultation. Now, we've mentioned EasterCon a number of times previously on this show. This is because it it is next year, 2016, happening in Manchester. And we happen to know a fair number of the organisers because the the geek sci-fi genre world is relatively small um, and we're all at points in our life where we know quite a few people um, and also Starburst magazine is kind of in some tangential way going to be involved around the edge with like I don't know a giveaway or a sponsorship or a supporting role or, or something uh, but anyway uh, British Science Fiction Literature Convention EasterCon has reopened its online questionnaire in an attempt to update itself for modern audiences with the convention calendar becoming increasingly more crowded every year Many in the community are expressing a desire to see the most established UK convention step up and adapt. The questionnaire, which can be found online, is the first step in making this grand old tradition more modern. EasterCon has been around since 1948 um, and is run by the fans for the fans. The event, traditionally held on Easter weekend, typically invites the great and the good from the scientific, science fiction and fan communities to talk and generally geek out over all things fanish. Um, yeah, as I say, happening in Manchester next year, tickets are available. We will publish links. Um, let's be honest, it's me sat here in the studio on my own today and ordinarily right now you'd hear a little tapping on a keyboard as I furiously found the uh, link to that and put it on our, our various social media feeds. That's not happening right now because because I'm good but I can't do three things at once and I'm, you know, playing the music and, and all the rest of it at the same time so that's the thing um what what does any science fiction convention do need to do to be more modern um be inclusive feel inclusive um we don't need uh, another flipping panel on women in science fiction we've all been on one or in the room when one's been happening now for the last 20 30 years um women in science fiction is a thing that happens like women comics is a thing that happens uh, it's here it's arrived get used to it um move on let's have something else let's talk about something else more exciting instead um you know the representation of of aliens in science fiction what are we saying there um what's what's the thing with that um be online have your presence online have your program online this is something nine worlds does very well it has an app where it updates its its schedule as the event is running um you know think about the basics of your thing um if you're trying to attract a younger crowd understand that they will not be into drinking heavily expensive craft beer uh, or wine they're going to want cheaper alcohol or no alcohol at all and not to be ripped off for prices on that um make it accessible in terms of hotel rooms not costing an absolute fortune make it accessible in, in terms of being near good public transport links because these days car insurance prices being what they are and the price of cars being what they are which have rocketed in the last couple of years a lot of young people don't have access to their own transport and need to rely on a friend a family member or, or the good old bus or bike or train to, to get anywhere bear that in mind as well um those are all practical things that I would suggest um, in terms of content, make it more relevant, have more women on your panels, have more uh, minorities of whatever sort on your panels. Um, be talking about things that haven't been talked to death at other conventions. Um, it, it can't, you know, it can't be hard to sit down and, and do a panel on something that somebody hasn't seen before. Um, even if it's minority and niche, the thing about a convention is you'll end up going to see things that you'd never thought that you would do because you will look at the program and in one particular slot there will be four things that you want to go and see and then in another slot there'll be nothing at all so you will drift into a room that looks vaguely like it might be interesting and sit down and hear stuff and that's the way to engage with any convention is to like 
turn up to the stuff that you ordinarily wouldn't and just see how that's going and see what that teaches you about the world. Um, so, yeah, don't be afraid, I think, convention runners, to have, you know, niche stuff, but signpost it well and make sure that people know where they're going to be able to find it. Um, next, James Tiptree Jr. Award attracts record number of entries. The James Tiptree Jr. Award is an annual literature, literary prize for works of science fiction or fantasy that increase the reader's understanding of gender. It is named after science fiction author Alice B. Sheldon, who went under the male pseudonym of James Tiptree Jr. Tip Tree Jr. in order to be taken seriously. Uh, this year's award has gained a record number of nominations over 250. I'm going to assume that the winner of that has not yet, has yet been announced. Again, we'll put up details about that and we'll talk about that again when it comes back round and the winner has been announced. <sighs> again, this thing of, of women having to write under pseudonyms. J.K. Rowling, of course, writes under J.K. Rowling. Uh, as my understanding is, because she was told by publishers, oh, you won't get taken seriously writing a book about a young boy if you're writing it as a woman. You'll sell less copies. Uh, George Eliot, of course, wrote under the name of man. The Bronte sisters wrote under slightly dubious pseudonyms when, when they first released things, as indeed did Jane Austen, um, whose books initially had to be sort of funded by her brother, effectively. Um... Just, just you know, I, I think there's there's an argument to be said that if you're submitting stuff to agents or publishers, that there's there's an argument for saying use some sort of um, blind submissions thing, so so the numbers, so that the uh, the names are taken off it. Um, the Bruntwood Prize, and and we could talk about faults with the Bruntwood Prize for some time, but the Bruntwood Prize does that. It makes everybody file off their VIN number and submit it under a pseudonym, and some of the pseudonyms are gloriously humorous. Um, but yeah, nobody knows who's submitting that. There's no assumptions being read into the name of any particular person submitting, and I think that's a real benefit. Um, and maybe we need to look somehow at how you do that. I mean, I appreciate with agents, you've got to pitch to them, um, you know, and say who you are and give a bit of information about yourself to try and try, to try and hook them and say, well, this is my USP for for that. Um, but once you get past that, you know, maybe the agent can pitch stuff gender-blind to publishers. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, we, we really should be past the point where people are going, oh, women can't write that. Oh, no, no. Anybody can write anything. And, you know, science fiction invented by a woman, Mary Shelley. Thank you very much. Um, we could go into that debate for some time. We won't. Uh, and World Book Night 2016 books announced. Oh, we love World Book Night. We love World Book Night here at the Bookworm. Um, if you've been listening to us since we started, which has been two years now, you'll know that we've got involved um, in both of the last two. Um, last year we were a little bit more low-key. I think we'd had an open evening at the Fab. The previous year we, we sort of went all out for it. I imagine um, that next year we might go for it big style. If you've been listening to us again for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that come the new year we're doing a bit of a relaunch of a new name hopefully a new logo and some various little bits of stuff like that to be brave new words which will tie into the column that Ed uh, ordinarily writes in Starbucks magazine you can't see this gentle listener but I've just pointed at the spot where Ed would usually be sat that's frankly strange um, but there you go so yeah World Book Night we have um, a tie-in with the Fab Cafe usually here in Manchester you will find um, book events happening in your local bookshop your local um, geek friendly area Probably. Um, again, we'll publish. Uh, we'll put links to all this on our various social media over the next week or so. Um, but the reading agency who organised the annual World Book Nights have announced their books for 2016. It takes place on the 23rd of April, which is, of course, Shakespeare's birthday. I um, think you might find, with next year being the Shakespeare 400 celebrations, that April the 23rd is going to be a tad busy. 
Um, personally, I'm going to be doing a little bit of directing around that that time. So yeah, but so we might have to be a bit flexible this year on when we hand out books. But there you, there you go. Uh, so the 2016 selection is "Am I Normal Yet?" by Holly Bourne. Band of Brothers by Stephen E. Ambrose. Uh, I Can't Begin to Tell You by Elizabeth Buchan. Uh, Last Bus to Coffeeville by J. Paul Henderson. Love Pose by Carol Ann Duffy. Ooh, Northerner. Poet Laureate, I believe. Um, interesting. I believe works at one of the Manchester universities um, as a literature professor, I believe. Might be wrong on that. Not sure, but very interesting. Uh, now You See Me by Sharon Bolton Perfect Daughter by Amanda Prowse Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig um, and Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo may have pronounced that wrong, apologies all other books, good grief, there's a lot of them next year, um, there really is let me just press that, there you go um, other books include Someone Else's Skin by Sarah Hillary, The Baby at the Beach Cafe by Lucy Diamond, The Rotters Club by Jonathan Coe, and Too Good to Be True by Anne Cleves, and, whew, last two, uh, Treachery by S.J. Paris and Whispering Shadows by Jan-Philippe Sendker. The Rotters Club, of course, um, has been made into a TV show. Band of Brothers, of course, has been made into a film. Um, I am reading, well, I say reading, I'm halfway through The Rotters Club by Jonathan Coe. I've been halfway through it for about the last four years. It's very good. It's very episodic. It is not by any means an easy read, um, but it's one of those sort of social history coming-of-age books um, that absolutely sets itself within its its time and its place. It's 70s West Midlands um, and uh, for a time it's... Um, uh, a part of Scandinavia is one of the lead characters goes on holiday over there uh, but it's absolutely of its time and its place and it's dripping with that sort of atmosphere of, of very much how um, a manufacturing heavy area was uh, in the 70s and the changes that were going on there with unionisation stuff, fascinating read as I say I'm only halfway through it because it is not an easy read by any, uh, any stretch of the imagination um, but that is one to be going on with okay it is 12.40. I know how long the other two interviews we have are, so I'm going to make the executive decision that we drop one of those. Um, and I am going to play one of our little stingy jingly things. Um, and then we will come back and we will introduce a song. Okay, so, um, today's format, obviously, slightly unusual. Um, I am now going to play you a song. Um, this is going to be a cover uh, of the Mumford & Sons popular tune, Sigh No More. This is by a young New Zealand lad called Reuben Hudson. Um, how is this literature related? Well, uh, Sigh No More, um, and in fact, the entire Mumford & Sons uh, first album is based um, uh, on... Uh, well, it's inspired by um, Much Ado About Nothing, the Shakespeare play. Reuben Hudson's version is used um, as a sort of extra little web series video um, vlogette thing uh, in a, a show that was on last year. 
uh, called much uh, called nothing much to do produced by a new zealand bunch uh, collective called uh, the candle wastes um ruben was playing balthazar um uh, and this is one of the songs that balthazar's character um uploaded to the internet um, at the time and so i'm going to play this for you um and say that it loosely relates to shakespeare who's obviously an author I'm going to say genre because um, why not? And it's a little bit alternative. So um, hopefully you will enjoy this. This is Fab Radio International. Aha! You're listening to the podcast on which, for complex copyright reasons, we cannot play music. So instead, here have an interview with A.L. Kennedy. A.L. Kennedy, welcome to the bookworm. Hello. Hiya. And what can you tell us about the Dresden's curse? Uh, Doctor Who book uh, set in Arbroath uh, with the fourth Doctor, uh, the Tom Baker Doctor, because that's kind of the one I remember most fondly from being a kid. I actually got the whole of John Pertwee as well, but um, I think Tom Baker was a good fit for me. Why the fourth Doctor? Uh, well, it was more the other way around. I think I think I would have had to do. Um, a fourth doctor just because that was the one something about the way John Pertwee dressed kind of freaked me out he was still the doctor and I still liked him but I think I had vestigial very very early memories of Patrick Troughton and I think I preferred that kind of um, sort of foolish um, doctor so so Tom Baker worked better for me so um, I probably didn't think of any other doctor and then you're thinking well in this particular situation with these things going on um, how how would he deal with it and I wanted to set it um, in the days when they couldn't go anywhere else and it had to be on earth because it was cheap um, I wanted to, to kind of set it in the time period that was kind of my classic time period for for watching um, Doctor Who so it's 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 on earth uh, which I never actually liked when I was a kid I always liked it when they left earth but it's on earth and it's um, 1978 The story is written in such a way that you can almost see the sets wobbling um, why did you take that approach? Uh I think I just wanted I wanted to to kind of recreate what my um what my most enjoyable episode would have been so uh I always like the mind control stuff I always like the stuff where people were being particularly horrible to the doctor flinging him to the ground like there were always two burly guys one on either side of him and he'd always get thrown to the ground and I'd always get enormously upset about that so there's a bit of frying to the ground um bit of mind control and sort of interior torment and temptation and that kind of stuff uh yeah i just i just set it up to be everything that i would like so it's kind of got that period feel and yeah this this the, it's it's not um well i mean the, the the special effects now they could make them look quite whizzy but yeah they're, they're, they're nothing too huge probably why does the doctor start out on his own in this story I, I, because I, I love that. Uh, my favourite episode when I was a kid, and still one of my favourite episodes was the, uh, well, the series with the Deadly Assassin, um, when they sort of called Tom Baker's bluff. He, he wanted to do it himself and just have 
whatever Dr. Watson was, the, whoever was standing next to him to talk to and explain the plot, or that he would talk to himself. Like he's not, he doesn't look like somebody who wouldn't talk to himself or talk to the TARDIS. Um, so they sort of said, yeah, okay, then we'll give you a whole series. And of course, it's, it's actually really quite good. Um, so I, I said it just after The Deadly Assassin. Um, so he's kind of looking for quite a mellow time um, to recover from the horrors of all of that. And um, again, I always liked as a child the bits where you knew he was going to get a companion. You knew by the end of the series he'd have clocked at least one person. Uh, and you, you always kind of knew that it would be somebody who wasn't enjoying their life that much and they had quite loose roots and who, you know, he was going to give the chance to be in the TARDIS to somebody who would really appreciate it. And I kind of loved that. And also, you know, I'm sitting on the carpet at home going, take me, take me. Um, so I wanted that to be there as well. I mean, not that I wouldn't have enjoyed... I also couldn't... I, I couldn't decide what which uh, assistant to give him, actually. He had so many, because Sarah Jane's so great um, and Layla's so great. Um, you know, if I did another one, I would decide. <laughs> Will we see any more Doctor Who for me? Uh, I, I haven't said anything formal to them, but I, w- I would like to, and I've got kind of half an idea that I need to cook. I mean, we'll see how this one goes, and if they would let me do another, I'd be very happy to, yeah. What else are you up to at the moment? Uh, I, while I was writing this novel last year, I was also writing a novel for adults, a uh, literary novel. Um, so that comes out next year. It's called Serious Sweet. Uh, and there's some non-fiction coming up, uh, radio drama coming up, um, odds and ends. But really last year was was big, full-on, heavy year because I was doing two novels simultaneously, kind of. And I'm not sure, it it might be interesting uh, uh, if you had nothing else in your life um, to read both novels kind of simultaneously or one after the other. They probably relate in some way. How different were the two projects? (laughs) Well, Doctor Who's a lot more fun, but obviously everybody knows about it, everybody's got an opinion about it. There's a whole, you know, Whovian universe of people. Um... So you knew that you would kind of have to please them, uh, but primarily I was I was aiming to to do something that I thought it would be responsible and fun and pleasant for some child um, was what I was aiming at, and that that I always feel slightly more responsible for things or slightly more under pressure if I'm writing for for young people, you know, adults. By the time they're reading me. You know, if they're ruined, I haven't ruined them, but I don't want to ruin a child um, by making them have an unpleasant reading experience. Um, so you felt that pressure, and the pressure to get it right, and, and you know, it's it's a thing that I loved, and I wanted to catch... Ooh, um, I wanted to catch kind of the, you know, the real feeling and the excitement of... Uh, being with the doctor and watching it, and kind of the thing that I, that I always wanted to get in 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 the books, which was to be, you know, to to get more than the series. Um, some some of the uh, novelizations were quite literal, and so so you just got what you'd seen transcribed in a way. And I always wanted a, a bit more sort of thought and feeling. Um, so I tried to put that in. What other franchises stuff do you fancy doing? Ooh. Um, would I? Well, I mean, I have written a, a vampire sitcom for Radio Scotland, which was quite fun. Uh, so vampires were fun, but that's a sort of generic thing now. Uh, 
I love the world of Babylon 5, but I'm perfectly happy that J. Michael Studinsky would continue to do that, <laughs> except he stopped. Um, but, I mean, the arc of that was extraordinary to think, you know, I will write um, five years' worth of these episodes and they will make sense and it will all come good in the end and I will explore things uh, from so many... I mean, that was just such a kind of um, ambitious project, so I kind of love that that's there. Warehouse 13 I would have loved to, to, to write for, but then Warehouse 13 ceased to exist and I thought that was almost the atmosphere of that was very hoovy and it was very uh, playful and you know intelligent and uh, kind of great If you were trapped on a desert island with only one book for company what would it be? Lordy being, being, being a writer unless I could make paper and uh, I'd probably be too busy trying to catch anything to eat so I wouldn't want to waste my time making paper I, I'd probably want a blank book to be honest because I'd still want to write, and I could probably make ink or something that I could scratch with. Um, but paper would be quite problematic. Uh, so if I only had, if I really, really, really only had one book, either that was something with very big print, and I'd write in between the lines. Uh, in which case, collected works of Shakespeare. Then you get Shakespeare, and you can write around the edges, and you've got loads of pages. Win-win. <laughs> if you got to meet your sixteen-year-old self, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, my God. Uh, my 16-year-old self, I, I was very tense. I was very tense until I hit around about 28. So I would probably say to my 16-year-old self, it'll be okay. Um, try and have fun more um, and sort of follow follow your heart a bit more. Probably at that point I was wondering whether I should get involved with theatre, wondering whether I should do artistic things and people were telling me not to um so i probably have shouted before i disappeared sod them do what you want um it will go quite well for you <laughs> simpsons or futurama oh that's so hard uh, uh it has to be futurama you know severed heads and jars and things yeah stem bender yeah gotta be and actually, some of the sci-fi ideas in Futurama are extraordinary. They throw away, basically, movie ideas in one episode. I mean, sometimes it's great. Spaceships or space stations? Oh, that's very hard. <sighs> oh, I suppose if I had to be... I suppose I'd want to be to have access to a spaceship, and then if I wanted to visit a space station, I could. Uh, and what's the point of being in space if you're stuck on a space station? Because it will just get invaded by something, or there'll be a creature in the plumbing that eats your brain, or... Yeah, best to have a spaceship, I think. Truth or beauty? Oh, well, no, they are the same thing. Sorry, that's... that's yeah. Uh... <laughs> Truth is beautiful, and uh, beauty is uh, the part of its essence is truth. So, yeah, that's like saying socks are socks. <laughs> I pick socks. <laughs> Amanda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Fab Radio International. International. Um, should you want um, to have a very entertaining somewhere between four and six hours of your life, I would recommend uh, nothing much to do. 
uh, as a way to watch a modern Shakespeare adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing. If you get into that, there's a sequel, Lovely Little Losers, based very loosely on Love's Labour's Lost, which I suspect is coming to an end. I spent yesterday catching up on several months' worth of that. Um, Okie doke. Um, now... I've got, a, I've got a choice here. I can either play you an interview and go very close to the wire in terms of time, or we can try and do some a little bit more book news and a bit more of me rambling on and see how that goes. Let's go with the second one. So, regular listeners will know that a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Bad Sex Awards. Oh, gentle listener. Morrissey. Morrissey has won the Bad Sex Award. Um, uh, <coughs> let me read to you. Literary Reviews uh, report on this. Morrissey has won the 23rd annual Literary Review Bad Sex in Fiction Award for List of the Lost. The prize was presented by the lawyer, columnist and performer Nancy Delolio. Um, the award was announced as a lavish ceremony on Tuesday the 1st December at the In-N-Out Naval and Military Club in St James's Square where 400 guests raised a toast to the winner. Frankly, that in and of itself is just absolutely ludicrous um, in terms of a turnout for this thing. Um, rather like the Razzies, the uh, awards for bad acting which are announced the night before the main Oscars proper, Morrissey failed to show to collect his own award. Um, List of the Lost is Morrissey's debut novel. His memoir came out in 2013, but the novel List of the Lost follows four Boston relay runners who are cursed by an old man in the woods. Already sounding kind of strange, gentle listener. Uh, the judges were swayed by an ecstatic scene involving Ezra, one of the athletes, and his plucky girlfriend, Eliza. You, you may want to close your ears as I read you the excerpt which has become quite well known. So, here we go. At this, Eliza and Ezra rolled together into the one giggling snowball of full-figured copulation, screaming and shouting as they playfully bit and pulled at each other in a dangerous and clamorous roller-coaster coil of sexually violent rotation with Eliza's breasts barrel-rolled across Ezra's howling mouth and the pained frenzy of his bulbous salutation extenuating his excitement as it whacked and smacked its way into every muscle of Eliza's body except for the otherwise central zone. Morrissey, love... What? 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 Ha have you had sex? Really? Because that all sounds... Partially it sounds kind of violent. Partially it, it sounds just... Oh, just wrong, my friend. Um, it sounds painful. Unpleasant. I've, I have no clue how breasts are supposed to barrel roll. Um, screaming and shouting? That's, that's, that's not good, my friend. Not good at all. Um... Just, just terrible. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. I'm genuinely at a loss. Um, obviously wasn't able to attend the ceremony due to touring commitments and was unavailable for comment as well. Mm. As he explains in List of the Lost, sex was always there. Everywhere photographically, in print, in film, so expansively thought about, there's almost nothing more could need to be said about it. I think, frankly, we would all be glad if he'd said much less about it in this book. <sighs> yeah. Um, the Literary Review website tells you what, what competition Morrissey fought off 
to win this award. And frankly, I can't read much of it on the air. Even though we're not regulated by Ofcom, we do quite like having people advertise with us and also, you know, sending us review copies for us to actually talk about. Um, I can't read most of this stuff out. Again, we're going to post the links to the literary review right up on our social media. Um, and... Yeah, exercise caution, dear gentle listener. Don't read it at work, if only because you're liable to spatter your tea all over your computer screen. And nobody wants to have to explain that to their office cleaner, really, do they? Um, it's it's just terrible. But why? Why has nobody's sub-editor picked up on how gloriously terrible this all actually is? Um, why has nobody sat down and said listen, the premise of your basic story is absolutely fine but this, this is terrible. Go away and have a think about what you've done. Anyway, um, also in this section, in shocking news, um, Hachette's book group chief executive Michael Pietsch, and I've probably pronounced that wrong, has predicted huge growth in writing and reading in the years to come because I'm sometimes quite juvenile. This comes after the Bad Sex Awards, if only for the use of the phrase huge growth uh, in writing and reading in the years to come. As a generation nurtured on Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and The Fault in Our Stars reaches maturity. Um, uh, the guy said today's young people have had books as a huge part of their lives and have watched those books become excellent movies, expanding their imaginative hold. Uh, having grown up online, they are all of necessity writers and readers. As each generation comes to the market over the next decades, their demand for great and exciting books will fuel a huge growth in writing and reading. As if, apparently, none of us have ever done the thing where we read loads and loads of stuff when we were kids, um, and then got into adulthood and realised that running around, attempting to just hold down being an adult, sucked all of your time... Um, and, and as much as we would all want to, to write stuff and possibly, read, and, well, definitely read stuff, possibly write stuff, depending on the sort of person you are uh, and the outlet for your creativity, sometimes you just don't have the time to do so. Um, I, I currently am coming to the end of my contract in my uh, my day job, uh, and currently my um, aim is to spend January reading the decades' worth of books that friends and family have bought me for birthdays and Christmas that I have physically never had the time to sit down and read. Um, I am currently about 60 pages off finishing a book. I started reading in about August. It's all of 260 pages. The print's fairly large. Um, and I've struggled to be able to find the time to finish that. It's crazy stuff. Um, everybody has busy lives. We all want to, to read more, I think, probably. If you listen to this show, you definitely do. Um, it's just finding the time. Um, yeah, uh, this guy's written a long article. That prediction was amongst several in his piece, taking an optimistic view of the future publishing, which is kind of his job, isn't it? You know, he's not going to sit there and go, oh, you know what, I'm ahead of a publishing group, but I'm going to say it's not looking good. No, that is not the way to excite a, a, a decent return on stock price. Um, yeah... Yeah, Pierre said that he'd been hearing about the demise of book publishing since the first day I stepped through the doors of a publisher back in 1978. The thing is, people will never stop wanting to read new ideas and new stories and new ways of telling old stories. People will never want to stop engaging in that. Possibly the old-style publishing publishers with the big, huge corporations might be going. That's a separate conversation. People are always going to want to read. People are always going to want to pass on stories to their friends and their family and their children and their grandchildren and the generations coming after them. Them. This is not massively news, I have to say. 
Okie doke. What we're going to do now, um, because we have all of six minutes left, um, is we are going to have a little stingy, jingly thing again. Um, and then we are going to come back um, and talk about Christmas gifting possibilities for the book lover in your life. This is Fab Radio International. So hello, gentle listener. Sorry, this is this is the point at which I realise I've utterly failed to upload the uh, the font, the end bit of the show, uh, where, where we we have an end theme tune. So I'm just going to be sorting that out for the next next couple of seconds or so. Just uh, amuse yourselves faintly whilst I whiffle on, um, because trying to talk about books and load up the next bit of, of uh, the radio software um, and look at websites all at the same time is a little hard. Okay, there we go. That's lovely. So Christmas is coming. Christmas is a whole three weeks off um we we need to talk about um what you might want to buy the book loving um geek in your life uh for christmas um we would obviously recommend going to your local bookseller um talking to them talking to them about what the person in your life likes reading about um talking to them about the sort of genres um and books that they like um you will very often find uh, in some bookshelves, suggestions along the lines of, you know, if you liked this book, you might like this book as well. Uh, if you like something by J.K. Rowling and you're an adult, you might like um, some of the uh, Galbraith things she's been doing under that pseudonym. Um, you might like um, some of the other things she's been writing. Um, so, if, however, you are the sort of person who thinks, you know what, the person in my life absolutely loves books... But um, they get sent lots of books for free. For review purposes, their house is absolutely groaning with books. The shelves are full. In fact, they're tipping out. Don't sit on the sofa. You might get attacked by the books leaping off the shelf behind you. Um, what then do you buy that person in your life? And I would, I would recommend, nay, nay urge you to consider uh, the options offered by the literary gift company dot com who i believe will probably ship internationally um and who have an entire range of just about anything you could desire uh, for the book person in your life mugs there's a lot of mugs um uh, i think some of my favorites are the ones that have the correct grammar on them i'm figuratively dying for a cuppa um they do the, the penguin books thing where they'll put the books cover on those for you uh, they do one for teachers in your life um but yeah Cy, Cy Lloyd, who occasionally presents this show, um, you could do worse than buy him the Dogs in Literature mug, uh, which has various dogs named upon um, that for you. Um, less milk and fewer sugar lumps. You know, grammar, grammar n- nerd amongst you. Um, mugs that say, go away, I'm reading, go away, I'm writing. Anyway, we love, we love the... Uh, 
We love the mugs. That's, a, that's an option. Diaries and calendars, cards and wrapping paper, stationery. Um, you also can probably um, do a lot worse than buy somebody a notebook. If somebody's a jobbing writer in your life, they need more paper. Um, it's just a fact. Um, you can buy them enough paper to last until eternity, and they'll have used it by the end of March. Um, so that's always an in as well. Um, and anyway, on that point, I have a minute and a half until the end of the show. Um, so we are going to end this bit and come back um, and do the bit where we say goodbye. <laughs> gentle listener we, we've we've reached the end it doesn't really feel like it's been an hour if i'm honest um i think we've all done well here um do get in touch with us via via the twitter the tumblr the facebook tell us what you thought um they can't find me i'm the producer um so yeah um with that we will see you next week when hopefully we'll have have some actual hosts um and we'll actually be talking about book reviews which is why you're here i know that um thank you for bearing with us uh we've also done this slightly more unusual show playing with the formats um and we will see you next week. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented and produced by A.L. Johnson.